All right, everyone, open up your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 30. Old Testament book of Jeremiah chapter 30. Last week, we officially began part two of our study in the book of Revelation. From our standpoint here in the Laodicean church period, we're starting to look at the things which shall be hereafter. But from John's perspective, as he's writing Revelation, remember in chapter 1, he was transported in the Spirit onto which day? The Lord's Day. And the Lord's Day officially begins with what event? The... Everyone can say it, don't worry. The rapture of the church, which is what we began looking at last week. We looked at the rapture of the church. But not only the rapture of the church, we looked at how, really with the rapture in the New Testament, there's three aspects of it. There's the first fruits, and those were all of the Old Testament saints that were resurrected and raptured at Christ's resurrection. Because again, in Ephesians 4, he led captivity, those souls that were in Abraham's bosom, in the, the belly of the earth, right next to hell. But they, Abraham's bosom was heaven back then. And as Christ descended, and he preached for those three days that he was buried in hell to the, those spirits that were reserved in chains of darkness, wonder what that message would have been like. But afterwards, when he went to go rise again from the grave, he took captivity, those who were in Abraham's bosom, and he captivated them and took them up into heaven with him when he resurrected. That was the first rapture in the New Testament. And of course, the second rapture, the harvest, that's talking about the, the rapture of the church, which is what John was talking about in Revelation chapter 4. And then we talked about briefly that third rapture that shows up in Revelation chapter 11. It actually shows up in two other places in the Bible, but it's all the same event, and that was the rapture of who? People who are saved during the? Tribulation. And that's a perfect segue into what we are going to talk about tonight. What is going to happen after all of us who know and have trusted Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior when we are miraculously caught up in the twinkling of an eye and we're gone from this place? And we're gone. We are out of here. No looking back. Everything as you know it and as you see it today, no. Our life is over. And we are forever with Jesus. What's going to happen to those that are left behind? That's what we're going to look at tonight. The tribulation, or we're going to start looking at, rather, I should say, the tribulation, and even touching a little bit on what the Antichrist is. Who is he? What are his characteristics and his traits? But something to understand, and I know that you guys know this just from growing up, whether it's been in this church or in another church, if you've read those Left Behind you know, books or saw the horrendously made cheesy movies, you know that it's no good. But again, there's just something about going to God's Word and just seeing what He has to say that really helps put things into a proper context for us to really get our minds and our hearts focused on what is that day that time going to be like for everybody that's left here on earth? Do you realize that the tribulation period, it is without a doubt the most horrendous time that has ever existed on planet earth in all of history? The most horrendous. That's not just my opinion. That's what the Bible actually says. Jesus Christ himself said in Matthew 24, 21, that a time 
It's a time such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time, no, ever shall be. It's horrendous. But it's not just in the New Testament. He talks about this. No, all throughout the Bible, God was looking towards this day. We're going to see why he's focused on this day and this time period and why it is so important to him on his calendar, not only of prophecy, but of what Acts chapter 3 talks about, which is the restitution of all things. Him finally putting back in order that which has been lost since before the foundation of the earth. When he restores the kingdom and he sits down on his throne in Jerusalem. All throughout the Bible, it talks about this. It says in Psalm 110 verse 5, that it is the day of the Lord's wrath. It's a day that none of our family members are friends, and I'm sure in a room this size, surely some of you in here maybe haven't fully trusted in Christ. That is a day that none of us have to see. Why? Because God took that vial of wrath that He is storing up for the tribulation period, and He dumped it all upon His only Son. When Jesus Christ died in your place, in your stead, for your sins on the cross. We don't have to go through that. Our family members and our friends, our classmates, and if you work, your co-workers, they don't have to go through that. They just need to come to a point of decision where they realize their need for a Savior and they call upon Jesus Christ to save their souls. And they won't see it. They won't be judged by that. But for all those who don't, that is what is in store for them. And he continues in Zephaniah chapter 2, verses 2 and 3, he calls it the day of the Lord's anger. Yes, that Old Testament God. I don't know, you guys ever hear that? People talking in Christianity about, oh, I prefer the God of the New Testament. Well, I got news for you. Things that the God of the Old Testament talks about, they come back in the New Testament. It doesn't escape. A lot of prophecy in the Old Testament is talking about this day. He's very gracious now, but there's going to be a day where his anger is going to let loose. But in Isaiah 13, verse 9, you know what the Bible describes it then? It is a cruel day to lay the land desolate, and check this out, and to destroy the sinners thereof. The most horrendous time in all of human history, talking about what we're going to talk about tonight. Amos 5, 6. You don't have to raise your hand for this, but was anybody sad this week? Okay, I guess Andy is. I, I shudder to ask the reason why, but... Okay, all right. Anybody else sad? Anybody care to like just raise their hand and be like, yeah, you know what, I was sad this week. Carson, okay, thank you. I see some of, the, well, not every senior, but a couple other kids. Okay, you're sad because you're not going to be in high school anymore. You have to grow up now. I'm just kidding. I'm sorry. I had to. I had to. Let me ask you this now. As sad as you were, did anybody in here wail? Were you crying uncontrollably at all? Probably not. But you know that in Amos chapter 5, verse 16, talking about the period we're going to talk about tonight, it says that there shall be wailing in the streets of all, continually. 
the tribulation. And in Zephaniah 1.14, I see some mighty men in here. Some strong men. See the buffest one right back there in the back row? No. That's not, that's not a row, Andy. You know what? The toughest of the toughest, they ain't got nothing on Zephaniah. You know why? It says in Zephaniah 1.14 that the mighty man shall cry bitterly during that time. You see, when the Lord is describing this day like this and why I went through all of these verses is to hopefully gaze your eyes to look and see, the Lord's not messing around. This is a horrendous time, unlike anything else that mankind has ever experienced in all of human history. When you hear verses and phrases like that, it ought to arrest your attention to see what God is doing and what He's saying. And it ought to break your heart for your family members, and your friends, and your classmates that are going to be here if the Lord's only tarrying for about another two weeks. Just throw out an arbitrary number there. I'm not date setting. Yes, Andy. To go along with what you're saying, I, I did have to experience family members who I witnessed and had the console who were wailing and to hear their cries mm -hmm. with what they had witnessed. I can't imagine what this is like. You said, you know, the context of the horrors in the streets. Yeah. Because to see somebody in the anguish that I had to witness from an event that happened this past Monday, it is devastating, mm -hmm. uncontrollable. Yeah. You know, you never know what a, uh, a day might bring. About four Sundays ago, there was a man who visited our church uh, through invitation of Robbie Densmore. This man went into Robbie, Robbie Densmore works at Bears Sporting Goods and uh, Power Sports. Thank you. Sorry. And uh, Robbie was able to kind of, you know, talk some sales with him, talk some shop. But then as Robbie's prone to do because his boss is his father-in-law, he just starts to witness when he sees an open door. He walks right through it. And uh, this guy ended up coming to church, and I'll tell you what, four Sundays ago, we sat next to him, Heather and I. It was a Sunday. You sang the guitar that day, or you sang and did your special that day, right? And Sorry. And uh, Andy, there's a lot on my mind. And, or not Andy, Stephen was preaching the message that Sunday. And I'll tell you what, in all of the years that I've been here, since the very beginning of this church back in 2000, it was the best, uh, the best first-time interaction I've ever had with a guest. I mean, you could just tell this guy loved the Lord, but was very, very open and honest too, where he's like, man, you know what? I, I needed everything that was being preached today. I'm excited. He has this 13-year-old girl who is a junior hire. He was excited about bringing her to, to come into Wednesday nights and Sunday mornings. He was even asking me, he's like, so what class can I go to? Because, man, I want to get plugged back in and I, I need to make up for lost time. That was four Sundays ago, and the reason why I kept mentioning things in the past tense is because two Saturdays ago, this man was in a motorcycle accident and took his last breath on this earth. Just came from his calling hours right before here. You never know what a day is going to bring. And for those of you, we're going to talk about this later on tonight, for those of you who maybe know the truth, maybe you've been a part of this church for a while, or maybe you've been a part of a church for a while, but you've never come to that point of decision where you have chosen to trust Jesus Christ as your Savior. 
You understand that if you know these things, you're like, ah, you know what? I love what I'm doing too much. I love my school friends. I love the things that I do that, man, my leaders at church would uh, be a little bit blushed if they knew I participated in. I'm just so comfortable in my sin right now. I know the things. I have them up here. And I'm just going to wait that if the rapture of the church happens and if I'm not genuinely saved, ugh, then I'll know. And I'm like, yeah, it's going to be a rough time. And uh, I know what the Bible says about me probably losing my head. But you know what? At least then I'll know and then I'll get serious about God. You realize the Bible says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 4, that if you receive not the truth now, if you don't receive the truth while you have been given an opportunity to receive the truth, and you continue to reject His gracious, merciful offer of salvation, you refuse the truth now, do you know what you will by default accept when that day does come? Lies. You will be deceived because Satan will, or God will send rather, strong delusion to whereas you will believe a lie from the Antichrist. So if you're waiting until that day of the rapture to confirm, oh man, all this is true, all right, now's the time where I'll get serious with the Lord. Too late. You need to come to that point where you receive and call upon Jesus Christ to save you. If you've never had a moment where you have specifically called Him out and there's not been a, a life of fruit, of life change since that point of decision, do not mess around with the grace of God. Behold, now is the acceptable time of salvation because you know not what a day will bring. Guaranteed tomorrow, you're not even guaranteed to make it home tonight. All of these things. But there's one thing that I really wanted to draw your attention to. That's really what we're going to cover for the next couple of minutes. Who knows how long this is going to go. But Jeremiah chapter 30. Look at me in verse 4. Here's another passage of what Jesus has to say about this day. And these are the words of the Lord spake concerning Israel and concerning Judah. It doesn't say the church there, does it? No. Verse 5. For thus saith the Lord... We have heard a voice of trembling, of fear, and not of peace. Ask ye now, and see whether a man... Oh, goodness, pay attention to this. Ask ye now, and see whether a man doth travail with child. You know what it means to travail with child? It means to be pregnant. He's saying, do you see a man pregnant? Do you realize, five years ago, we would have thought nothing of this, other than what it actually says as a comparison. But oh my goodness, how things have changed. <laughs> you have emojis to pander to the LGBTQ alphabet mafia that says a man could get pregnant with child. Again, do you realize, five years ago, we never would have thought anything other than just the fact that this is a simile. You know what a simile is? Showing something that is similar. It's showing a comparison. That's what this verse is. But seeing as how it's talking about the end times, this is starting to take on quite a literal application. Wherefore do I see every man with his hands on his loins 
as a woman, meaning he's not really a woman, but he's acting as a woman, maybe even thinks he's as a woman, in travail, and all faces are turned into paleness. Alas, verse 7, for that day is great, so that none is like it. It is even the time of who? Jacob's trouble. But he shall be saved out of it. As I've already pointed out, the church is not mentioned in here. Because as we've talked in the weeks past, church is gone. The church will not be here. That's why the church is not mentioned in Revelation chapter 4 all the way to chapter 19 verse 10 when the church is coming back down on the earth with Jesus Christ to take this world back by force. No, the tribulation period, it is the time of Jacob's trouble. Israel, it is where God deals again with his first love. Israel, God the Father, the apple of his eye, which is Israel and always has been Israel. So, on your outline, letter A, an overall timeline of the major events. We're going to break it down in detail in about two weeks' time from here. But turn over to Daniel chapter 9. And I'm just going to say it right now because, again, I have no idea how long this is going to go. Don't worry, we'll stop around the normal time. Around the normal time, that's the key word. So, it's 8.01, Andy. Keep your hat on. Anyways, Daniel chapter 9. <clears throat> Excuse me. Daniel chapter 9. There's a lot of verses. I'll have to say there's a lot of verses on your study sheet. If we don't get to them, make sure you check them out later. But we do got to nail this out. This is one of the most confusing passages of prophecy in all the Bible. And we're going to try to summarize it in <laughs> five minutes. Five minutes in Corey time is about 15. <laughs> <laughs> Daniel chapter 9, follow along with me in verse 24. Seventy weeks are determined upon thy people. Okay, stop there. For the sake of time, I have something down here to help you guys so you don't get confused. Seventy weeks in this context, one week equals seven years. Now, we know how much a week is, right? How long is a week? Seven days. Close, Andy. Weekends do count. But what's interesting is that the way that God defines words in the Bible in other places of Scripture, it takes on a whole different other meaning. Case in point. Let's get little hairy uh, pregnant lady off of there. Genesis 29, verses 27 to 28. This is Jacob when he is trying to break away from Laban, his father-in-law, and be with his wife. He says, fulfill her week, and we will give thee this also for the service which thou shalt serve with me yet, how long? Seven other years. And Jacob did so and fulfilled her, what? Week. Jacob worked for seven years. But in this context, it's called or likened to one week. But of course, you can't just take one passage of Scripture. You've got to compare Scripture with Scripture. That's why Leviticus 25, it also says, talking about the Levitical law and giving the land rest, six years thou shalt sow thy field, and six years thou shalt prune thy vineyard, and gather in the fruit thereof, but in the what year? Sabbath. Shall be a Sabbath. Sabbath. What does Sabbath actually mean? Rest. rest. What day is the Sabbath? Saturday. 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 
And so from Saturday to Saturday, from Sabbath to Sabbath, is one week, right? But he's talking about the seventh year here. Shall be a Sabbath of rest unto the land. In other words, give the land a break from all of the reaping and the harvesting you're doing. A Sabbath for the Lord, thou shalt neither sow thy field nor prune thy vineyard. He says later in verse 8, And thou shalt number seven Sabbaths. Oh, so seven weeks, right? Well, look what he says. Seven Sabbaths of years unto thee. Seven times seven years in the space of the seven Sabbaths of years shall be unto thee forty and nine years. Oh, that's interesting. We're coming to that in a little bit. Point I want you to see with these two passages in Genesis and Leviticus is that, yes, a week, it literally means seven days. But God, in these two places of Scripture, and as we're about to see here in Daniel chapter 9, one week is also the equivalent, depending on the context, of seven years. Does everybody see that? Everybody saw that from the Scriptures here? Okay, let's go back to Daniel 9, 24. So he's saying 70 weeks are determined upon who? Thy people and upon thy, where? Holy city. Where's the holy city? Jerusalem. So 70 weeks. I know you guys just got out of school, but let's do a little bit more math together. 70 weeks times 7 years equals how many, class? Carry the two, Andy. Oh, shoot. I can't hear Why do I not hear everyone saying the answer out, out loud? 490. Thank you. Thank you for that boldness, Mallory. Four hundred and ninety years equals seventy weeks here. All right, great. Whatever God's about to talk about here, He's talking about four hundred ninety years. But for what? And when does the timetable start? Well, let's keep reading. And to make an end of sins. Oh. You skipped a line. Upon thy holy sin, to finish the transgression, thank you. To finish the transgression and to make an end of sins. You know what, in my Bible, it's a literal line. Good job. And to make reconciliation for iniquity and to bring in, now listen to this, everlasting righteousness. So we know just from the context of what he's talking about here, he's talking about the end of all things. He's talking about the moment when Jesus Christ returns, casts the Satan the Satan, the devil, the Antichrist, the false prophet, more on them later, into the lake of fire where they burn forever. And there's a new heaven and a new earth. And Jesus Christ is ruling and reigning on his throne in Jerusalem because there will be no more sin there. There will be no more fleshly bodies. It'll be all done with. We will all have glorified bodies like unto Him. This is what He's talking about. It's also known as the New Covenant. If you want to write down Jeremiah 31, verses 33 and 34, where He's talking about, I will give you a new heart. But He's even talking about, I will make a new covenant with my people, Israel. I will give you a new heart that you will sin no more, and you will know me. It's a verse that a lot of Christians today take out of context and apply it to salvation, but the context thereof is talking about a time that's not until after the thousand-year reign of Christ. So this is way, way, way out there. But let's keep reading. And to seal up the vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy... Know therefore, verse 25, and understand that from the going forth of the commandment 
to restore and to build Jerusalem. All right, stop there because he just gave us when the timer starts. Where is Israel at this point in time in history? Not right now in Daniel chapter 9. They're in Babylon. Remember the beginning of Daniel? Where Daniel and his friends Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they're all taken away. They're captured. They're enslaved, enslaved away from Israel. And all of Israel, they were ransacked by the Babylonian Empire. And they're in Babylon, not in their homeland. Yeah. So he's talking, hey, when you guys go back into the land, that's when it's going to start. And he gives you the next point, the next key to understanding this. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem unto the Messiah, the Prince. Who's that? Jesus Christ. He's the Messiah. He's the anointed one. Shall be, uh uh-oh, seven weeks and three score and two weeks. All right. I got something else up here for you guys. We have one week equals seven years. And we have this word score. Score is 20. What would three score be, class? 60. Yes, thank you. So three score is 60 plus two is what? So 62 weeks. So now he's talking about, so here's the total, 490. He's talking about uh, seven weeks, which equals how many years? 7 times 7, 49 years. Oh, what, what, hey, what happened? 49 years? Oh, 49 years. And then he says 62 weeks. Okay, this is a little bit more trickier. 62 times 7 is? 483, actually. Close. I know, where I know which math you're getting at, though. I, I know what you're getting at. We don't have time to go into that math. 400. Wait a second. No. Wait a second. The total is 483 years. Yes. I, I was thinking the total. Say that number again. 434? 434. I already revealed to you guys I got my first D in chemistry junior year. You don't want to know what my math was like. 483 years from the moment when that Israel was to go back and build the wall and the temple in their own homeland. That's when the timer starts. And at the end of this, who's supposed to come? Jesus Christ. Now, wait a second, though. We're at 483 years. I thought he came after 49. Well, let's read it again. This is good. He says, To build Jerusalem unto Messiah the Prince shall be seven weeks and three score and two weeks. 62 plus seven is 69. Now, here's what's interesting. That first period of the seven weeks there, Israel was sent back by Cyrus, the king of Persia, to go back into Israel and to build the temple. Anybody know what book of the Bible talks about that? Ezra. 
they go back and build the temple, but they don't start building the wall until the next book, Nehemiah chapter 2. When that happened, it was 485 B.C. It took them, anybody want to take a guess to how long it took them to finish the wall? That's why God didn't just say 69 years. He said seven first, and then another 62. Now, here's where it gets a little confusing, but look at your outline for point number one. Oh, wait, nope, scratch that. Let's read the rest of the passage here first. So at the end of all of this, Messiah is supposed to come. And the street shall be built again in the wall, even in troublous times. Verse 26, and after... Three score and two weeks. Now he's talking about the 62 weeks right here. After this, when we're here at the 483 year mark, after that, Messiah, or shall Messiah be what? Cut off. But not for himself. You see, he's going to be rejected. He came unto his own and his own what in John 1.12? Received him not. He was cut off. He marched into Jerusalem. He was on that colt. And they cried, Hosanna, Hosanna. And then three days later, they put him up on a cross, the same exact crowd. Three days later, he was cut off. He was killed. Buried three days, rose again later. But look what happens after that. And the people of the prince, is that capital P or lowercase p? Ah, lowercase. That's different from the Messiah, the prince, in 25. He says, And the people of the prince that shall come... In other words, there's another prince that's coming after the Messiah. He shall destroy the city... Which city? And the sanctuary, the newly built temple. And the end thereof shall be with a flood, and unto the end of the war desolations are determined. And he, the lowercase p that shall come, shall confirm the covenant with many for how long? One week. How long is one week? Which equals how many? 490 years. One week. He shall confirm the covenant with many for one week. 7 plus 62 plus 1 is 70 weeks. One week equals 7 years. 490 years. Now we'll go to your outline. The tribulation is the last week of Daniel's 70-week prophecy. And it will last a total of seven, don't miss this, lunar years. Anybody know what the difference is between lunar years and what we accept as the solar years? Connor? Isn't a lunar, lunar year only 28 days? It might, uh, I don't know. I was thinking it might be, but the way I was thinking about it is that a lunar year is 360 days per year. Okay. A lunar year is the Jewish calendar. That's why if those of you in your head heard me say that the temple being rebuilt and the walls being built started in 445 B.C., the math doesn't quite add up. 
And that's what I was thinking Megan was talking about. The math doesn't quite add up if you look at it from our calendar. But if you look at it through the lunar calendar of 360, you shave off about five years. And wouldn't you know it, 49 years of building the temple and building up the defensive wall in Israel, God then goes into a 400-year period of silence because he finishes out the Old Testament... Technically speaking, chronologically speaking, Second Chronicles, the very last chapter in your Old Testament from a Jewish perspective. And at the end of 434 years, you know who comes on the scene and is marching into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday? Christ. From a lunar year calculation of 360 days, from the moment they built the wall, or started building the wall, to the end of this, Christ comes in and he's crucified three days later. And you should be thinking to yourself, now wait a second, shouldn't there have been seven years and then this whole thing should have been over in the book of Acts? Yeah, there should have been. Jesus Christ, God the Father, being so patient and so long-suffering. The 2 Peter 3 talks about the long-suffering of the Lord is salvation. He is so kind and merciful to His people, He gave them another shot after they crucified Christ. Acts chapter 7, with Stephen preaching to all the council of Israel, with Saul, who would later be called Paul, standing by trying to get them one last chance to repent and see that they missed their Messiah. Messiah was come and he was cut off. Receive him now because you don't know what a day is going to bring. And then said they stone him. And God decides in Acts chapter 7. I'm going to pause the time clock right now. And I'm going to go into what I call a parenthesis period for about 2,000 years. Because I'm going to go to a people group that will receive me. That will receive the grace that I have to offer them. But at the end of that 2,000 years, I'm going to bring them home. And I'm going to start the clock one last time. Because it's the time that I'm going to deal with my firstborn. I'm going to deal with the apple of my eye, Israel. And they're going to go through some harsh spankings during that time. But I love them and I'm not done with them yet. And I have a plan for them. And at the end of that seven years, when they come through the tribulation, I'm going to give them the new covenant. I'm going to take out that stony heart and I'm going to give them a new heart where they'll never sin again. And they will know me. As Jeremiah 31 says, this is Daniel's 70th week. Now, pretty easy for me because I've been studying this for quite a while, but I want to be absolutely certain because, again, as I said, this is one of the most complicated doctrines in all the Bible. Does it make sense? Anybody have any questions? Okay. I did all of that. We didn't necessarily have to, but I did all that because I wanted you guys, number one, to see just how deep and how vast and how well thought out God has everything, but also just the idea that down to the very year, God specifically told them, God told Israel when they can expect Him to come, and they still missed Him. And I'm just now thinking about this. 
He told them exactly when they can expect him to come the first time, and they still missed him. He's given us everything to be able to look up and to see what time it is right now to know when he's coming back. We just spent 10 weeks going through church history to see when he's coming back. To just spend last week looking at the rapture of the church and know he's coming back and it's going to be soon. Remember he talks about when you see a tree when it starts to bloom. Christ says this in the Gospels. When a tree starts to bloom, you know it's close. Hmm, it starts to bloom in springtime. You ready? God put this here in His Word, just like God put everything else in His Word for us to grow and to mature as saints and to not get caught up with the affairs of this life, to endure hardness as good soldiers, not get caught up in what people say about us, what they do to us, what somebody else thinks of us, not to get bogged down with any of that garbage, to not be entangled thereof but to press forward with what we're supposed to do. And if we're not careful, we can miss it just like Israel did. In fact, that might be the reason why he calls us home to begin with. Because the church is missing what he's doing and is missing what he wants from us. Back on your outline. We see that there is a prince that is to come, the Antichrist, who will destroy the city and sanctuary. The end thereof shall be with the flood, war, desolations. He's going to set up a seven-year covenant. It's going to be established by this prince. And in number five, in the midst of the week, what do you guys think that is? Seven years divided by two? Three and a half. Last math problem for the day. Something really bad happens. Turn over to Matthew 24. I touched on this, I think it was last week. So many Christians, they, they twist this passage out of context, thinking that it's either A, talking about things the church will experience in the tribulation, or they say that this is what's going to happen right before the rapture of the church. And to a degree, yes. But really, everything that's in Matthew 24, it is talking about the tribulation period. Look at verse 15. When ye therefore shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by who? Daniel the prophet stand in the holy place and don't miss this. Whoso readeth, let him understand. That's exactly what God said to Daniel in chapter 9. I hope you're understanding. I hope you're standing under the authority of God and know what He wants to, to do in your life, what He expects of you, and that you're doing it. Verse 16, Then let them which be in Judea flee into the mountains. When the abomination of desolation takes place, you and I aren't going to be here, so this passage cannot be for the church. we got no mountains to flee to. Let him which is on the housetop not come down and take anything out of his house, like Lot's wife probably did. Neither let him which is in the field return back to take his clothes, and woe unto them that are with child, and them that give suck in those days. But pray ye that your flight be not in the winter, neither on the Sabbath day, for then shall be, what? Great tribulation, such as was not since the beginning of the, the world to this time, no, nor ever shall be. And except those days shall be shortened, there should no flesh be saved, but for the elect's sake, those days shall be shortened. Again, 
You want to play roulette? You want to play Christian roulette with God? You want to wait until the rapture happens and then get serious about God? There's your salvation. It's by grace through faith, all right, in the tribulation period. But it's not through, oh, Lord, uh, sorry, I guess I should have listened to you sooner. But hey, thank you for dying on the cross for my sins. I believe that. I know I'm a sinner. You died for me. Uh, I call upon you to save me. All right, just make it quick, okay? No. Your days have to be shortened in the tribulation period, which means... And also, you have to endure until the end. You take the mark of the beast, as we'll talk about here next week, you're done. Lest, I guess, if it is in your hand or in your eye, you can cut off thy right hand if it offend thee, or pluck out thine eye if it offend thee, because it were better that you go into the kingdom of heaven without eye or limb than to, for your whole entire body to be burned in hell. Rough paraphrase, but that's what Christ had to say. I wonder if there's any connection there. Then, verse 23, If any man shall say unto you, Lo, here is Christ, or there, believe it not. For there shall arise false Christs and false prophets, and shall show great signs and wonders. Hmm. Insomuch that if it were possible, they shall deceive the very elect. Behold, I have told you before. Wherefore, if they shall say unto you, Behold, he, Jesus, he's in the desert. Don't go there. Behold, he's in the secret chambers. Believe it not, for as the lightning cometh out of the east and shineth even unto the west, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. Ugh. This something that's really bad on your outline that happens in the midst of the week, it's the abomination of desolation. We'll see what it is specifically here in a little bit when we go to 2 Thessalonians. But in short, it's where the Antichrist goes into the newly built temple in Israel, in Jerusalem, sits down on the throne and declares himself to be God. He makes the entire temple desolate. It means he stupefies it. He makes it completely and utterly putrid because of that, because of what he says. There's a little chart there, again, kind of just summarizing everything we already went through. You guys could check that out later. But number six on your outline, really there's three parts to the tribulation. Interesting, there's three type, or there's three parts to the rapture. There's three parts of the tribulation. There's the first three and a half years. There's the middle, and then there's the last three. We're already here in Matthew 24. Look at verse 4. Jesus answered and said unto them, Take heed that no man deceive you. For many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many. And ye shall hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that ye be not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. This is what I was talking about, where yes, this passage is for the tribulation, but you and I can kind of already start to see glimpses of this right now, can't you? Are there not wars going on right now? Is there not a rumor that the United States might get involved with a war? Absolutely. For nation shall rise against nation, Russia, Ukraine, and kingdom against kingdom. Just take a look at the Middle East. Oh, boy. This verse has taken on some meaning in the last couple of years. And there shall be famines. Anybody been to the grocery store lately? Seen the shelves? If not, do yourself a favor and go to the grocery store with your mom next time. If you haven't already heard about the food shortages that are going on. 
Oh, and pestilences. Uh, last two years, anyone? Oh, and the new one, monkeypox. It's, well, hey guys, guys, it's an election year. Hint, hint. And earthquakes in diverse places. All these are the beginning of sorrows. Then shall they deliver you up to be afflicted and shall kill you. More tribulation context, but boy, I wonder if we're going to start seeing some trickle down of this here before we're raptured out of here. And ye shall be hated of all nations for my name's sake, and then shall many be offended and shall betray one another, and shall hate one another. Let it not be once named here. And many false prophets shall rise and shall deceive many. And because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. Understand, that definitely applies today. You have sin in your life that you're not dealing with. You have unconfessed sin in your life. Don't be surprised if you find yourself hating going out to pass out tracts, not giving a care at all in the world for witnessing to your friends at school. If you have sin that abounds in your life, you will not care. You will not care. It'll wax cold. But he that shall endure unto the end, the same shall be what? Is that how we're saved right now? No. You don't need to endure to the end of your walk and then maybe, hopefully, fingers crossed, I get into heaven. That's not how Jesus works right now. Further proof of this passage is talking about the future when he dispenses his grace in a different form than what he does now. It is so free right now. It's so free, and it's easy. Knowledge is easy to him that understandeth in Proverbs 14, 6. You just have to stand under the authority of God and say, Lord, I need you. I know you died for me. I call upon you to save me, and he'll do it. It's so easy, so simple. So that's the first three and a half years. Reminiscent to now, but you know what you'll find in the first three and a half years as you study out Revelation, as we'll see a little bit next week too? There's relative peace that goes on. Because think about it. What will have just happened? Millions of people will have disappeared with no logical explanation whatsoever. There's going to be a lot of turmoil. There are going to be planes crashing out of the sky because Christian pilots all of a sudden disappeared. There are going to be accidents galore on the highways and the byways because drivers just up and went. It is going to be horrendous. People are going to be clamoring for hope. They're going to be clamoring for someone to give them an answer so that they can have peace in their hearts no matter what it takes to get over the loss of their loved one that mysteriously vanished. Mark it down. That's your family and friends who don't know Christ. Do you care? Do you have a burden for that? Or is iniquity waxed cold? Or iniquity bounded so that your love waxes cold? If you want to write down Jeremiah 6.14, Jeremiah 8.11, that's the whole idea of relative peace. Again, it's a prophecy of the end times. For many shall say, peace, peace, when there is no peace. Number two, the middle. This is where, we, again, we won't belabor this point, but it's the abomination of desolation. The Antichrist, he shall speak great words against the Most High. 
and shall wear out the saints of the Most High. Those who are starting to get saved in the tribulation period, he's going to wear them out, just like he seeks to wear you out on a daily basis to get you to not walk with God. And think to change times and laws. A lot of that going on right now. And they shall be given into his hand until a time and times in the dividing of times. Three and a half years. Revelation 11, 2 and 3 says, But the court, this is talking about the temple, which is without the temple, leave out and measure it not. For why? What's going to happen at this three and a half year point? It's going to be given unto the Gentiles. And the holy city, which is where? Jerusalem. Shall they, the Gentiles, tread underfoot Forty and two months. Sorry, I lied about the last math problem. How, how long is that? Forty-two months? Three and a half years. And I will give power unto my two witnesses. We'll talk about them a little bit later, but just for fun trivia, anybody know who they are? Moses and Elijah. Raise your hand, class. School's not out yet. Not my school. Just kidding. And they shall prophesy a thousand two hundred and three score days. Anybody know how many... Uh, Months that is? 42. Three and a half years. Clothed in sackcloth. So these guys show up on the scene around that midway point. Why? Because the temple and Jerusalem have been completely overrun and sacked by the Antichrist and his minions, his nations that are supporting him. Because again, he sits down on the right hand of God or on the, on the throne and declares himself to be God. And there was given unto him, the Antichrist, a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies. We'll look at that more next week. And power was given unto him to continue 40 and two months, and he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle and them that dwell in heaven. Anybody remember in, I think it was uh, John chapter 10, what the Pharisees accused Christ of blasphemy for? Not that. Yes. We said, they said that they were going to stone Christ because he declared that he and the Father are one. Blasphemies. That's what the Antichrist is going to do. Declare he and his Father, not his Father, are one. The abomination of desolation. That's what that is. So again, another chart that I put on here for you guys. First three and a half years, you have the Antichrist, the false prophet. More on him next week. And the false church. That's interesting. And it's a time of relative peace. Then you have this midway point where something changes. He breaks that covenant we talked about in Daniel 9. And then kicks in the great tribulation where all of the judgments, everything that you know Revelation to be about, that's when that stuff starts kicking in. Next page. Carson. Real quick, turn over to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Yeah, Carson. Are Moses and Elijah going to be there the whole time that the Antichrist is in power as well? Is that what it says? They shall prophesy a thousand two hundred three score days, clothed in sackcloth. They are the ones, actually, Revelation 11, verse 12, when we talked last week about the third come up hither. That's specifically for those two. That happens at the end of the tribulation period. So when it, I would take it to say that when it says 1,203 score days, they may be here for the first half, but they don't start preaching until the second half to try to save all of those who are going through turmoil at that time. Now, when the 144,000 are around, they kind of cover the first half. We'll talk about that in the weeks to come, though.
2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Letter B, the Antichrist. We got more we're going to say on him next week, but we're going to try flying through these real quick. I wanted you guys to see 2 Thessalonians also, though. Look with me in verse 1. Let's actually uh, start with Sam, and we'll snake our way around. Let's everybody take one verse. We're going to read verses 1 to 9. Now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, and by our gathering together unto him, um, that ye be not soon shaken in mind, or be troubled neither by spirit, nor by word, nor by letter. Uh, as from us as the day of Christ. You know what I find interesting about that verse? I mentioned it before in here, but just because we're actually reading it. You see that Paul was saying, hey, don't be troubled because you got a letter that seems though it appears to come from me. In other words, there were false epistles, false letters, false Bibles going on all the way back then. Verse 3. Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come, except there come a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition. Who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God, or that is worshipped, so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. That right there, verse 4, is the abomination of desolation talked about in Daniel chapter 9 and Matthew 24. I mistakenly said verse 4 for what we're going to look at here coming up, but for those of you who wrote down 2 Thessalonians 2.4 for the, uh, you know, the strong delusion, cross that out. It's coming though. Alright, verse 5. That's you. Sorry, Gracie. Remember ye not that when I was yet with you I told you these things. Hmm. And now you know what withholdeth that he might be revealed in his time. For the mystery of iniquity doth already work. Only he who no letteth will let unto unit that <laughs> until he be taken out of the way. And then shall that wicked be revealed, and the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth, and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. Even him whose coming is after the working of Satan, with all power and signs and light. All power and signs and lying wonders. Verse 10 says, And with all deceivableness, we got to read these next couple verses, and with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish. Why? Because they're sinners and God was angry with them. No. Look what it says because this will help you in your witness. I'm telling you guys. Because they received not the love of the what? Truth that they might be saved. If anybody at school or any of your friends or family members try to talk to you about how, how can a loving and just God just stand by and let all of these horrible things happen to all of these people, why would He do that? Why would He send all of these people to hell? It's not that. It's that they refuse to receive the love of the truth while He is giving them ample opportunity to receive the love of the truth. That's why when you reject truth, you embrace lies. And they are doing that. And He's continuing to be gracious with them, especially in this time right now. 
And for this cause, verse 11, this is the reason why God shall send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie. Why? Verse 12. And it's harsh, but it's the New Testament. I thought this was the Old Testament. No. That they all might be damned who believed not the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. I'm telling you, this is probably the most gospel-heavy night we've had on Wednesday nights so far. Someone in here must really need to hear this, and I don't know who. So it must be of the Lord, and I'm trusting Him on it. I'm telling you, if you don't receive the love of the truth now, you might not have hope later. That's right. I trust God. I believe that, you know what, He's still going to try to, to or He's still going to send people. The 144,000 witnesses we're going to look at, the two witnesses of Moses and Elijah, other saints who get saved, and then they go and tell others. I believe that's going to happen, but... You know, there are people, there are tribes and tongues in this entire world that they've never heard the gospel to this day, still. I mean, Heather, weren't, your mom and dad were just came back from Africa. Didn't they just run into people that they still never heard a white man, still never seen a Bible? These are things that we read about in those missionaries back in the 1500s, 1600s of, of, of these tribes and these tongues that have never heard of the Bible, never heard of Jesus Christ, never heard of or seen a white man before. And I'm like, I can't believe this stuff's still going on. There are millions of people that are like that today. They've never had a chance to receive the love of the truth. When I think about that, I think that might be who they're going to go to first. The tribulation saints, the 144,000. But somebody who has heard the gospel Sunday after Wednesday after Sunday after Wednesday continually. You're abusing grace if you receive not the love of the truth. If you don't come to that point of decision where you call out to God, I need you. I am a sinner. You died in my place and you rose again the third day. I need you. Save me. If you've never come to that point, quite literally, you're playing with fire. He will send them strong delusion. And again, that person who doesn't want to get saved, they know the gospel, they know what they need to do to get saved, but they have pleasure in unrighteousness and they don't want to get saved right now. Just reread verse 12. Doesn't bode well for those people. So, the Antichrist. Point one, he's the child of the devil who is against God and his seed. You can check out Genesis 3 later. about That's the first prophecy of Jesus Christ coming through the seed of a woman, a virgin birth. Satan's a counterfeiter. He knew that. Why else do you think he had Herod kill all of the firstborn males before Christ came? Satan knows the prophecy. Why do you think he tried to have all the firstborn males in Israel killed in the book of Exodus? Satan knows the prophecy. He's been trying to stop that seed, but he's a counterfeiter. So if God has a seed, he has to have a seed. The devil has a seed, point number one, just as God does. You know, 1 John 4.1 says that we need to try the spirits. 
Because not every spirit that saith that they belong to Christ is ours. Not every pastor who says he stands up and believes the Word of God does actually believe the Word of God. Not every teacher. That's why we got to try the spirits. Go to the book. Every spirit that confesseth not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not of God. There are denominations and, well, specifically cults, Jehovah's Witnesses, Seventh-day Adventists, and Mormons, that they do not believe. They believe that there was a real person named Jesus Christ, but they don't believe that he was God in human flesh. They deny the deity of Christ. That is the spirit of who? Antichrist. Whereof ye have heard that it should come, and even now already is it in the world. If John is saying this back in 70 A.D., that there are antichrists in the world, how bad do you think it is now in the most perilous church period of all time where truth is watered down, where everybody has itching ears, where they just want the, the man behind the pulpit to tell them something to, to make them feel good and to not call out sin, not to define what true righteousness and judgment is and how to be right with a holy and just God. How many antichrists are there today? Ye are of God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Number two, as Jesus Christ is manifest in the flesh, the Antichrist is, is the devil manifest in the flesh. That's who he is when he comes on here. Oh boy, I could do an entire message on 18 major types or pictures of the Antichrist in the Bible. Going from Cain all the way to Judas. Hold on a second. Math. I think that number means something in the Bible. I don't know. Number four. The Antichrist is the second member of the Satanic Trinity because, again, he is a Counterfeiter. Check out those passages in Revelation later. Real quick, number two, some names, titles of Antichrist. 1 John chapter 2 says, Little children, it is the last time, and as ye have heard that Antichrist shall come, even now are there many Antichrists. Again, whereby we know that it is the last time. Uh, even John thought it was the end days back then. Because technically speaking, ever since Christ died, as we just saw in Daniel chapter 9, it is the last days. It started at the foot of the cross. God has been just very, very gracious to us to give us a 2,000-year parenthesis period of grace. Who is a liar but he that denieth that Jesus is the Christ? He's the Messiah. He is Antichrist that denieth the Father and the Son. That's what the Antichrist is going to do when he's here on this earth. Oh, Number one, you guys can check these passages of Daniel out later. You know what? We'll pick up here because there are so many things. I know I'm going to get off track if I start talking about some of these things. And it's better for us to actually see it in Daniel. We'll pick up here next. <laughs>